Today's program was brought to you by Bordeaux Wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a reasonably priced wine for everyone and for every occasion. For more information, visit bordeaux.com slash US. Today's program is brought to you by Campari. For more information, visit campari.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli, and I am really excited about today's show. Uh, before we get started, uh, I want to uh, let you guys know there are many ways to listen to In the Drink. You can listen to it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can listen to it on Stitcher, which is pretty a pretty wonderful place to listen to podcasts. iTunes, or uh, as I do, I, I just use the iTunes iTunes app on my uh, on my phone, and really we are anywhere better or uh, you know not so good podcasts are being played. You can find in the drink. So um, please do sign up uh, and subscribe to to in the drink on any way that you like to listen to podcasts. All right, so I'm excited about today's show. We actually have uh, two guests with us today um, in the studio here to celebrate the first annual first ever week of orange wine the creator of the week of orange wine uh stetson robbins from blue danube wine and then also dorley muir from the muir Vandenierport winery in uh Karnentum, austria these are some of the most beautiful elegant wines coming out of austria um in her other life she also has a pr company that represents some of the greatest wines in the world such as wines of austria and wines of portugal um and she makes a uh, a wine that is i guess considered to be maybe an orange wine because it's a white wine with extended skin maceration but we can debate what is an orange wine and all of that here on today's show. And we can also find out really important topics of discussion, such as, is it Blaufrankisch or Blaufrankisch? All to come today. Uh, but welcome to the show, everyone. Hi, hi. Hi. <laughs> hi, thank you, Joe. Stetson, tell us about uh, your idea of a week of orange wine. It's something that you have been talking to me about for quite some time say joe let's do a week of orange wine let's make it happen and i'm always like i love the idea but i don't have the energy to do it but you've 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 made it happen well i i, I certainly have not done it alone and uh uh your your interest in it originally certainly uh helped to encourage bringing it up to other buyers uh, in shops and restaurants uh, tara hammond uh, uh at amphora i have to say was really one of the big motors for it uh, she she kind of demanded that we do it, and uh, I'm glad because the more that I've talked to buyers and sommeliers about it, everybody uh, takes their own has their own take on orange wine as a category, has different ideas about how to work with it, and uh, is increasingly adopting it into their uh, wine programs, which I think is great because. You know, diversity in wine is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And now you, you hear the word orange wine, and uh, how would you describe orange wine? It's obviously, it's not a flavor. And arguably, with Dorley, with your wines, it's not even the color of the wine, but maybe the method. Would you agree with that? 
Absolutely. I don't think, although we are focusing on orange wine as a category for wow week of orange wine uh it is uh it's technically not it's just a, a vinification technique that is uh, commonly applied to red grapes but instead applied to whites and just because it's uh just because we call it orange wine doesn't mean uh that it's necessarily orange in color only that the white grapes were handled like red grapes and dorley's been introducing hers as the orange Green, the green orange wine. <laughs> the green orange wine, yes. <laughs> and what what uh, brought this interest? Why did you start making uh, Gruner Veltliner in the style? It seems that people think of Gruner Veltliner as being such a fresh, clean, crisp, refreshing wine, and arguably that takes some of that away from it. And and mm. it's a different idea for Gruner Veltliner. Well, I wouldn't say it's a very uh, new idea to make mm. an orange Grunewaldliner, uh, but it's the very, very old style, because this, you know, that you that you that you harvest the grapes and you press them imme- immediately and uh, ferment them without the skins is relatively new. The old way of winemaking was, you pick the grapes, you crush them, and later on, like. One day, two days later, you press them. Why? Because all the aromas, all the history, all the story of a vineyard, of an origin of a grape is in the skins. It's not. It's not in the juice. It's in the skins. So if you press them immediately and you throw away the skins, you throw away the story of the wine. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, it was completely normal that you would leave the wine on the skins for some time, one, two days, whatever, and press them only then. And we, when when we started to make white wine on the Spitzerberg, uh, this is what we did from the from the first day on. At that time, the 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 notion of orange wine didn't exist. We just made the wine the old style, and only some years later, orange wine popped up in our you know vocabulary of, of winemakers. So we did it before that and we didn't know that we do orange wine. It was just the old style. Similar to the way the idea of organic wine didn't exist at some time because there weren't it was the normal. chemicals. It was, <laughs> it was just the normal thing. Yeah, it's just a yes. return to what is normal, maybe. Can you give us a little history lesson to when did the, the, the style go from doing a couple of days on the skin to the crisp, clean, mm. fresh pressed style that we know today yeah so it's it's it, it's of course it was not just you know one one cut and then everything has changed but it was a it was an evolution on 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 decades maybe because th- th- this happened when you know when when we introduced technology into winemaking more and more technology and more and more control we wanted to have control on everything not just in winemaking in everything in in life uh, we wanted to have uh, control on everything, so we introduced uh, stainless steel tanks. We introduced uh, um, temperature control. We introduced um, selected yeasts because there was the idea how the wine should taste, and then we made everything that the result is what we have imagined before in our heads. While the old-fashioned winemaking and the nowadays very modern and hip winemaking is you pick and you let the wine more or less become what it is without having too much control on it and uh, so this 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 is a change that happened probably 
you know, the, the, the step towards technology happened in the 80s, mm-hmm. more or less. And now the, the step back again is an evolution for the last 10 years, maybe. So it's like just going right, left, right, left, right, left. Now, um, I know that, you're, that with your wines, you don't use uh, selected yeast. You use mm-hmm. just the ambient yeast. Is it easier to do that if you're actually using the skins as well? Because I imagine most of the skins exist on, on the, or the yeast ex- live on the skins as well. Yeah, they live on the skins. Well, um, um, I don't think, I mean, once you press the 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 ferment is in the juice anyhow i don't think yeah. it makes a, a a big difference the difference comes is more a question of what the temperature is so if you try to ferment very very cool uh, then it gets maybe difficult with natural yeasts uh, because they are very slow, mm-hmm. while if you inoculate with selected yeast, wow, it goes like that and it's fermented in two days, it's finished. But if you work with natural yeasts like we do, it's better that you keep um, the ambient natural uh, temperature and it starts fermenting easily like after two days or so and it takes a longer time. So it's a very slow fermentation Um and um, it goes its way. Then we also have small quantities, so we don't have big, you know, um, tanks with 10,000 liters or hours. It's just like 500 or 800, so the temperature doesn't get up mm-hmm. very high by itself. So it's um, it's a slow process, and it's a very natural process. And you just, I think, the most important thing that you have to have is time and confidence. Yeah. And you have the wine here? Can we can we taste it? No. You don't have it? Okay, no, there's yes. another one. There's some wine in front of us. I'm excited to taste it. And how long does it spend on the skins, the the one that you do? Well, usually we well we pick, uh, we crush a little bit, but with our feet, so mm-hmm. we don't put it in the machine, but we walk on it. Uh, so we keep the, the whole bunches with the, with the uh, stems, and we walk at it so to, to, to get the juice out of the, of the berries. And then it takes maybe like two days until it starts fermenting a little. And then we keep it two more days to get, you know, the story extracted. So maybe four days before we press. And a question for you, Stetson. How do you know when it's an orange wine, right? Because there are, there are white wines that are maybe spend a few hours on the skins, like some Riesling, just to give it some extra texture. Um, is, it, is it an orange wine when someone has set just because they said it's an orange wine like at what point do you decide that that's what it is i don't i don't know that there's a i don't know that there's a clear answer to that yeah i think it's you know you you have um you have some producers who will macerate a small portion of uh, fruit to produce something uh like a component that will give texture and density uh, to a wine, uh, but uh, as to what technically an orange wine is, uh, it's difficult to define. It, mostly because it's not a it's not a category; it's just a vinification technique. And so, your your company, uh, Blue Danube, has wines all all along the Danube, going into Eastern Europe and Central Europe. Um, I imagine that that is uh, these these old wine styles, which sometimes still existed there, that you didn't see in Western Europe so much, is part of what has 
increased your spike your interest in these wines. That- yes, definitely. Uh, in the Republic of Georgia, the skin macerated white wines are held in the highest regard, and that's a different paradigm than we're familiar with mm-hmm. in the West, and and a valid one. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can, you know, it doesn't mean that you should have that all white varieties should be skin macerated. But I actually think that the story. Um, it's it's something that should be done. You don't make an orange wine because you want to make orange wine. You make orange wine because that is an expression of the variety that gets it more of its soul, uh, the character of the location, considers the climate uh, of the, the place. Uh, Dorley, can you tell the story of how you found the Gruner Vineyard? I mean, I think that this is a perfect story of why somebody chooses to macerate. Mm. So the, all our all our vineyards are uh, based on uh, Spitzerberg, which is a very hot and an extremely dry place with limestone, and it's definitely the contrary of of what Grunewaldliner wants. Grunewaldliner wants a cool place with a soil that can keep uh, enough water. So it is. I would never think about planting Grunewaldliner there, but when I started the project, like. 14 years ago with my then husband I I was always looking for old vines on the Spitze to get old vineyards and uh, one day I went into a wine bar the only one that exists in our region and I was there only once then it closed Um, and the guy talked to me and said aren't you the the one that is always looking for old vineyards and I said yes that's me I said look I have one and uh, he explained to me what, what was the location of the vineyard and that it was 30 years old and, uh, and that it has good results. And so and I said, OK, that sounds interesting. So can I, can I rent it? And he said, yeah, why not? So we agreed on a paper still that evening in the bar that I would rent the vineyard and uh, what I would pay for it and everything. And just before I left the bar, he, he, he said, oh, wait a moment, did I tell you that it was... Grunewald Liner. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I, was, yeah. uh, I was sure that it would be Blaufränkisch, which is the grape on the on the Spitzerberg. So then I had some Grunewald Liner eventually, which I, I wasn't so much interested in. And I said, okay, but this is a sign. If, I, if, if you get a vineyard of 30 years old um, vines, you don't dig it out. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it's a sign that I have to do something with it. And we started to find out how can we get a best, best uh, expression of that vineyard into the wine. And as it is a very dry place and a very hot place, you can't wait very long with the harvest. Otherwise, you lose all the acidity. So, so we need to get texture and structure in the wine without it being alcohol so we pick early and then we do that you know food stamping and the extraction via maturation and what you feel in that wine that structure that you feel in the wine is from the tannins it's not alcohol because this has 12 alcohol it's quite light and this is the wine that we have in our glass right here Mm -hmm. that's so exciting this wine is it's so good. It's so delicious. Yeah, and without and not extreme. It's not extreme. No, but the it has texture. Text, yeah, it, I I tend to gravitate 
towards wines with not low acidity, but I don't like to drink wines with lots and lots of acidity. And I find this so attractive because it has structure, dimension, texture. Uh, it's not alcoholic, and it's also not, uh, you know, so it's not pointy. It's not like a sharp uh, searing gruner as so often times they can be, especially when they're young. Mm-hmm. You can drink, you can easily drink a lot of it, but also it has a lot to say, which is which is hard to find wines that, you know, are, are both, right? Um, and how hard is it to find uh, a vineyard, an older vineyard? It sounds like you've, you're doing some looking in that area. Yes, the, the area is not very big, but it's... Um, it's uh, it's it's many many uh, uh, small slots of vineyards, you know, because in the old times, a family, a farmer's family, would always divide the property they have between the children. So you know, with the generations, the the, the little slots that you that you get there is like two or three rows of wines. In like is, the Napoleonic way in, exactly, in Burgundy, where exactly you have four kids, each one gets a quarter of it, exactly. and then each of them has two kids, and it's an eighth of the original. Exactly yeah. that that's the way it happened. Nowadays, I must say, the kids are not interested in getting the vineyards at all. So if they inherit it, they, they immediately what they do is to take the the vines out and sell sell the soil as, as it so I'm I'm there always watching like uh, where are the old vines who are the owners and which where is the risk that uh, the next generation would dig it out and to be there at the right moment and to uh, to avoid that happened so it's 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 but it's a very interesting thing because these these men that are in their 70s they go out after breakfast very early in the morning. They do their two, three hours handwork in the vineyard. And then they go back very often by bicycle, having lunch. And then they lay down. And the next morning they come again and do their work. So it's really it's it, it's really very, um, uh, very important to them. And you can't tell those people, look, give me your vineyard. You are too old to do it. You know, it's, it's their heart. So... I was thinking about how can I avoid that if one day those people don't want to do or can't do the work anymore, how can I avoid that the next generation just sticks sticks the vineyard out? Mm-hmm. So um, I and thought you, you can't approach them because of their pride. You can't say no, you can't. Like, it's clear. I, come on, man! Like respect. you don't have that much you know time left. This is hard for you. Can you just sell me your vineyard? Yeah. Like they they have too much pride and they wouldn't just yeah okay. yeah. And I mean, you can't see a vineyard just as a place where you grow wine and 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 sell it it's it's something you know they got from their parents and from their grandparents and they have to have been every day of their lives so you can yeah no you can't do that it's it's yeah very connected so i thought that the right place the or the only place where they would think about giving the vineyard away is when they are really having like aching bags or whatever so i I've asked the medical, the doctor of the village, whether I can put the poster in his waiting room. And he said, yeah, why not? So I've put the poster, like, um, I'm searching vineyards, old vineyards, and if you have one, please call me. And uh, it um, it worked quite well. So I got this year, I got a 60-years-old vineyard wow. of Blaufränkisch, and I got a full hectare. <laughs> Of four different vineyards of Grüner Veltliner, which was not really what I looked for, but it's, 
I did the first harvest and it's really, really great, um, which are around 30 years old. So it's really, it's, um, it's a privilege to get those old vineyards who have a lot of history and uh, it's, it's fantastic. I'm very, I'm very, very happy and proud. And so after harvested, I went to see those people and brought them some grapes and I will bring them the wine when it's ready and say, look, this is what happened with your vineyard and you can be happy and uh, proud that you gave it to me because I will honor that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a very emotional thing. A vineyard is a very emotional thing. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and uh, contemplate the 60-year-old Blau Frankish vineyard after this. And this one is called Wake Up by EULA. We'll be right back. Bordeaux is one of the most reputable and well-known wine regions in the world. While many are familiar with its legendary first growths, there is so much more to discover. Bordeaux offers a dynamic and diverse range of wines, different styles, different colors, and different price points. Did you know that Bordeaux produces crisp, refreshing whites? Or that many of its outstanding reds can be opened now and don't need years aging? Or that it's really easy to find a great bottle of Bordeaux for under $20? With such a diverse offering, Bordeaux wines can pair with a huge mix of contemporary foods and cuisines. Bordeaux wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a wine for everyone. For more information, visit bordeaux.com slash US. When you talk about Campari, one of the first things that comes to mind is the inimitable and ubiquitous Negroni cocktail, a favorite of Heritage Radio Networks. Joe Campanelli, host of In the Drink on Heritage Radio, talks about the interesting history of the Negroni cocktail. The the classic Milano Torino, which is better known as the Americano cocktail, which is Campari, good red vermouth. Use good red vermouth like Carpano Antica Formula, Contrado, Cocchi Vermouth di Torino, one of those, and soda water. Then later on in its uh, history was transformed into the Negroni, which substituted good gin for the soda water, something a little bit stronger. Count Negroni spent many years traveling the Midwest, the Southwest of the United States, found a penchant for strong drinks, and later went to London where he started to like his gin, brought that all back to his favorite bar in Florence and said, I'll take one of those Americano cocktails, but make it stronger, make mine with gin. And such was birthed the Negroni cocktail. Um, And now it's really popular. I find people are asking for Negronis with agave-based spirits, uh, mezcal or tequila Negronis, especially mezcal, a little more popular. Um, So mezcal Negronis are really delicious. Experiment with your own Negroni recipe and enjoy it with Campari for a perfect cocktail creation. For more information, visit Campari.com. Please enjoy responsibly. All right, we're back with Stetson Robbins, Blue Danube, and Dorley Muir of Muir van der Nieport and Wine and Partners uh, from Austria. Uh, Stetson, tell us about some of the places where we can find 
uh, exciting week of orange wine events for the for you know the rest of this week and and who else is who's in town who are some what are some restaurants and wine bars that are participating absolutely uh, so this is the this is the first time that we've done it and it came together rather organically uh, it, it is coincidental that Dorley uh, actually produces something that's skin macerated herself. Uh, on the heels of Dorley is Becca and Nina Gotsadze from uh, uh, the Republic of Georgia. Uh, they'll be presenting it raw. Uh, so you, there's actually, I think, going to be quite a few mm-hmm. examples of orange wine at Raw, so a good place to, to check out. And we're doing a tasting in Hudson uh, with Fish and Game. Uh, Peripheral is the name of the tasting, so we'll be there with Goza, and uh, there'll be some other orange wines there. Uh, Terre du Verre uh, and Dirty Bird, uh, they're pouring a lineup uh, for Thursday. Uh, also on Thursday, consumers can go to Back Label Wine Merchants or Discovery Wines and taste orange wine for free. Oh, wow. Which is kind of cool. The, so there's actually quite a few shops that are pouring um, uh, in, instead of, you know, they do tastings every couple days or every week. And so they're featuring orange wine. So you might you might encounter them many other places, too. You know, I find some orange wine naysayers. What, what do you say to these people? How do you handle people who are like, I just don't like orange wines. White wines aren't supposed to be made with skin contact. It's only for red wines. Yeah, I, it's, you know, some people do have this position and, and uh, if they're really hard set to it, they're, you can't convince them. Uh, but uh, I, it's, you know, we macerate red grapes. Why can't we macerate white grapes? If you just follow the, the logic, uh, there's no reason why. I think as Dorley pointed out earlier, uh, this was something that was traditional prior to uh, the Industrial Revolution and the advent of modern mm-hmm. vinification. So it feels – I like drinking the wines myself. Uh, I tend to um, – and, and it doesn't mean – I think a lot of the naysayers uh, criticize the wines for uh, not being uh, qualitatively uh, consistent. But – what category of wine is qualitatively consistent? I mean, if you take Pinot Noir or Rosé, if you take Rosé, for instance, as a category, there's more bad Rosé than good Rosé. Mm-hmm. That's and good so point. it's not, it's, I think it's ridiculous to expect that, you know, all of the orange wines in a category, which producers are largely experimenting with and learning these techniques, uh, it, it should be expected that, you know, they're not all going to be good. It makes complete sense. And although this is such an old way of making wine, for many people, they're, they're just starting to bring back this old tradition. So I'm sure there's still a period of learning. And I find that with a lot of the good producers each year, their skin macerated whites actually get better and better and maybe less extreme and just prettier. Uh, I think with, you know, Mjörvend and Nierport's an interesting example because the wines, and we should taste through the Blaufrankisch, they're so precise and uh, detailed and elegant, uh, I think classic, uh, and the white also uh, has those qualities, macerated or not. Yeah, that white was great. So I, I'm going to uh, uh, follow your direction, and let's taste some uh, van der Nierport Blaufrankisch now, or Blau, Blaufrankisch. Well, it's Blaufrankisch. Blaufrankisch! Mind blown. It's Blaufrankisch, actually. <laughs> I'm not going to try that one. I'm not going to try that one. In private, I will practice. Until next time, um, so, okay, so we have, uh, what do we have in front of us here? So you have got uh, two Blaufränkisch uh, in front of you, both grown on the hill of Spitzerberg. 
But um, so as I told you, we have very little uh, different lots of vineyards and we we pick them separately, we keep them separately. And before we bottle, we see how they developed. And um, we separate those barrels that are the finest and the longest and and put them under a label called Spitzerberg. And uh, all the others that are very complex, but maybe not as long, we call them Samt and Seide, which means velvet and silk. And it always happens that the longest and the finest barrels come from the oldest vineyards. Mm -hmm. So Spitzerberg happens to be a result of uh, vineyards that are between 45 and 60 years old. And uh, Samt and Seide comes from vineyards that are up to 30 years old. And the name Samt and Seide, I think you find both textures in that wine. You have the, the silkiness, which is very, very dense, very fine, but very, very dense, which is from the terroir of the Spitzerberg, and then the velvetiness that comes from the little bit younger vines that are rounder and softer. So you have both. Um, I tend to say that the uh, Samten Seide is like serious pop music. I mean, pop music can be very superficial, but it can be serious and and uh, and 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 yeah, exciting. And I think this is what Samten Seide is. It, you can drink it easily, but it tells you a lot. It's it's um, yeah, very long and yeah, and Spitzerberg is just the intellectual wine. <laughs> I think that uh, uh, Roberta's is playing some serious pop music in the background <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, I really like how the something inside it is really aromatic, very mm. floral and perfumed. perfumed yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. I've never had. Uh, it's interesting that she that Frankish. you talk so much about uh, texture mm. because the wine is the perfume is really so uh, complex and outgoing. Uh, yeah, the, but the, most of the wine drinkers tend to detect first the perfume and then very often stop there or just then go mm -hmm. on the large, you know, on the volume of the wine. But I, I tend to look more on, on the texture, which is very often linked to the terroir, to the soil, you know. If you think about Meursault, for example, it's just texture. It's just texture, and this is what I love. And... Um, I, I really want the wine to be dense and, and, and have a good uh, structure and long. And I don't look for fruit because mm -hmm. fruit is easy. You can do it with selected yeast. You can, uh, with, you know, you can control it very much. This is just a natural <laughs> expression of the fruit, but because we don't interfere. Yeah. <laughs> In a way, it embodies some of the best wines have uh, tension. Yes, exactly. Things that are opposing each other. And giving it an, an energy, and, yeah. and here you have that both uh, in the in the aromas, but also in in the texture, and the uh, so in the the older vines we have the 2011. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. It 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 doesn't taste uh, obviously there's there's more earthy flavors, um, but it doesn't taste like it's an older wine, a three year older wine. It's so bright and vibrant and beautiful. Yeah, I think Blaufränkisch is a grape that needs time. Uh, to develop the and the hotter the year the dry the year the longer it needs in the old times we drank blaufränkisch like after 10 years 
it was normal, like 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 for Nebbiolo, Barolo, mm, etc. Yeah, really. And it's only ev- ev- in the times of technology that we started to drink wines young, which I think is a mistake. Oh, you can do it with other grapes, but not with Blaufränkisch. Take your time and then drink it when they are mature. Otherwise, it's it's just. Yeah, yeah D- Dave Foss from uh, Anfora went to Austria recently, and he came back, and he was like, Joe, Blau Frankish with age. This is, like, we need to tell everyone about this. He was exactly. really big on it. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, it's my next project is mm. to economical project, let's say, is to keep uh, the, the wines as long in the cellar as they are until they really are drinkable, oh, wow. which is tricky because, I mean, you have to talk to the bank. But um, I think it's a big shame um, and it's frustrating if you do everything right in the vineyard, in the cellar, even with, with the packaging, and then you serve the wine to a person and the person says, uh, it's uh, sour or whatever, because they don't understand that it's too young. Mm-hmm. And nobody can mature the wines anymore. The, the restaurants don't do it, the... Uh, the distributors don't do it, and the consumers don't have a right. wine cellar to do it. So if I want that my baby is uh, showing beautifully when a person opens the bottle, I have to keep it myself until it's perfect. Wow. And you make such a small amount of wine, right? How mm. many how many bottles do you produce annually? I make like 30,000 bottles 30, a year. 30,000 bottles. So to put, are you going to take... But keep everything back or release some early yeah. and then exactly so this back. is I, I just Amazing. kept the, the half of 2011 wow. and I release it now only uh, so the 2012 for example is drinkable earlier so I released the 2012 before the 11 yeah. was finished and so now I do it like that way so this we're actually going to have the 14 was kind of you feel is an earlier drinking yeah. vintage mm-hmm. and so the next uh It'll probably be in the spring when we switch over to these mm-hmm. wines. Right now, we're selling the 12 and 13 Sumptum Cider. Next, we'll sell 11 and 14. So we'll have two vintages in parallel, same price. The intention being to offer two different expressions of uh, of their of uh, Spitzerberg. Great. And if you could put your uh, PR hat on for a moment, here at Heritage, we're very interested in um, things that are made naturally and organically. Like your wine certainly fall into it. Uh, when studying about wine, we always hear that Austrian wines are some of the cleanest and most organic in the world. Is that true? Is that is it is that still the case? Is there really a uh, a push for for organic viticulture throughout Austria? Definitely, I, I I think all the leading producers and more and more of the non-leading producers are converted either to organic, but many of them to biodynamics, and uh, it is. You know, Austria is a country that lives so much from its nature, you know, in tourism and in food and everything. So it is also is a very clear and uh, and logic movement to um, to organics and to a very sustainable viticulture. Um, it's not very easy all the time because we have quite an amount of rainfall in Austria. So this year, for example, it was very, very difficult because we had rain like every other day during summer and you have to be very, very, you know, aware of what happens in the vineyard. You have to be out there every day like the old men still do in the Spitzerberg. You know, you all have to observe your vineyards. 
Um, but that's the difference. But if, if if you have just if you just spray with helicopters or whatever, you or you organize somebody to do the work. It's different from if you go there you, yourself and observe the plants. That's uh, that's helpful in in such a in such a movement. But it's true, Austria is very very driven to organics. Yes. Yes. All right. So drink Austrian wine and especially drink Mürer van der Neuport wines. They're so <laughs> delicious. Uh, Dorley, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Stetson, thank you so much, guys. Look out for Blue Danube wines, wines from Croatia, Slovenia, Hungary, Austria, Georgia, Bosnia Herzegovina. And Bosnia-Herzegovina. Who knew? They're great. Uh, Stetson, thank Thanks, you Jeff. so much. And Week of Orange Wine, a bunch of great places to, to look out for, uh, all pouring uh, orange wine. So thanks for organizing that as well. Thank you. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, Campari and Wines of Bordeaux. Thanks to David Tadishor for uh, producing the show and the Heritage Radio Network. And uh, we'll see you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.